This class was recorded on Tuesday, September 15th, 2020, and covers the next installment in our visual media study, in which we focus chiefly on the rule of thirds. Now, there was a PowerPoint that went with this lecture, and for my current students, that PowerPoint will be available online no later than dinner time tomorrow. However, for other people plugging in、um, who don't have the PowerPoint, I tried my best during the class to read the caption on each painting so that you would know. Uh, which painter, and specifically in most cases, which photograph or painting to look up by that author.、Uh, so, hopefully, you have enough to go on where you can Google the images and look at those、uh, with us, even if it means stopping and starting the podcast a few extra times so that you can find the image in question.、Um, all that being said, I think we have enough to go on. So, Let's plug in. Ah, there we go. All right, so today in history, today is September 15th, and it was on this day in 1782 that Congress adopted the Great Seal of the United States with the eagle, arrows, and the motto E Pluribus Unum, which for you Latin gurus out there, that means. Out of many, one. So, out of many states, we get one cohesive nation. In 1789, American author and historian James Fenimore Cooper was born in Burlington, New Jersey, best known for the leather stocking tales. This is a series of books, including The Deerslayer, The Last of the Mohicans, The Pathfinder, The Pioneers, and The Prairie.、Uh, on this day in 1821, Independence was proclaimed for Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, all on the same day, which is a nice reminder that as much as we know about the Americas, that especially for an American student, our、um, understanding of the Americas tends to stop at our own borders. So there's, there's an interesting story behind that. Which we will have to、um, unpack on another day. 1857, on this day, William Howard Taft was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. He would later succeed Theodore Roosevelt as President of the United States and then serve as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And of course, Taft has the、um, unfortunate legacy. He did several things while in office. <laughs> But the, the thing that he seems to be remembered the most for is for two things. Number one is that he was the president who had bathtubs installed in the White House. Huzzah! Having bathtubs. But then he also got stuck in the bathtub, and workmen had to be called to help pry him out.、Uh, uh, president Taft was very large, he was borderline obese. And so he. Sank into a hot bath and could not get himself out of it. And so,、um, big embarrassment, and poor guy, like that's like the one thing everybody remembers about him, but nobody remembers any of his policies.、Uh, English mystery writer Dame Agatha Christie was born on this day in 1890. She wrote numerous books and plays, many featuring detectives 
Hercule Poirot and Miss Jane Marple, which have sold more than 100 million copies. And uh, if you have Amazon Prime, then you might have noticed that there are dozens and dozens of movie and miniseries and television show versions based off of these two characters. And uh, Agatha Christie's, one of her many famous quotes, um, and this one tells you how her mind worked um, as a mystery writer, quote, every murderer is probably somebody's old friend. 1935, on this day, the Nuremberg Laws deprived German Jews of their citizenship, of their German citizenship, and made the swastika the official symbol of Nazi Germany. In 1949, on this day, The Lone Ranger premiered on ABC television with Clayton Moore as the masked hero and Jay Silverheels as Tonto. And then on this day in 1963, unbeknownst to worshipers, approximately 15 sticks of dynamite had been planted under the back steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. The sermon for the day was The Love That Forgives, taken from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The lesson was to be grimly appropriate, but before it could be completed, the church exploded, uh, hurling yellow bricks through cars, shattering nearby businesses, collapsing the church rafters, shredding pews, and shattering the windows. Um, and in the aftermath is when they discovered that four of their young girls had died in the racially motivated blast. Sobering thought. That is your day in history, but unlike the last several weeks where we have focused almost exclusively on the dark underbelly of human nature and the, the, the kinds of, the depths of despair and wickedness that we get ourselves into when we cave into our sinful nature, we're going to take a very different slant today. Um, I actually had thought for a while of going ahead and giving you a preview of Dracula today, but I didn't want to cross-pollinate that uh, this early when you are still working on your Pride and Prejudice uh, digging deeper discussion questions, which are due when? Friday. Friday. Just turn them in as you walk in the door. You do not need backpacks. Um, you might want a, a folder or something in, in your pack so that um, if I hand you any worksheets or any kind of um, handouts or anything that you can stick those away. Uh, but you don't need any books. Um, it's going to be tea party and some, you know, some fun stuff there. Um, and then we will get to an intro on Dracula next Tuesday. So. Instead of focusing on history or philosophy or on literature, I thought, well, today is a great opportunity to focus on visual media again. So what I have here, and Miss Earl, would you be able to hand these out for me? This is your little note-taking sheet today. We are going to talk about the rule of thirds and how it is used in paintings, photography, and film. So let's get these um, 
handed out. Uh, Zoe, I think I've uh, already sent you the handout. Uh, it should be in your email um, if you haven't uh, found that already. But while those are getting passed out, um, I have this photograph here from 1905, ship leaving for the Alaskan Gold Rush. Uh, there were several gold rushes in American history that caused an absolute furor as people would converge on one location or another thinking that they were going to get rich quick. Um, I, I don't need one, but um, we can keep the extras back there. Uh, thank you. Um, and now, where was the first gold rush? Uh, that was the second one, and that's the big one. That, that was the one that basically reconfigured the population of the United States because everybody and their brother just like got up and left, including Mark Twain. That was part of his wandering years, was going out west to, to see what, what could be found or learned from the um, California gold rush. It was in here in Georgia. The first one was in Dahlonega, Georgia. And this is actually at the root of the whole Trail of Tears and why we were pushing the Cherokee out of their lands. Part of it was because we wanted the logging, we wanted the timber, we wanted to set up our own towns. But part of it also was because we found gold in Vemthar Hills because Dahlonega is right up there uh, in the foothills at that tail end, that serpent's tail of the Appalachian Mountains, and so we found it there first, and then it was in California, and then in Alaska. Um, anybody know the famous author who, uh, his stories are centered almost exclusively in the world of the Yukon Gold Rush? Hmm? Yukon, Alaskan Gold Rush, yeah, the Yukon wrote Call of the Wild, White Fang, Jack London, Jack London. So this is, this is the day and era of Jack London and his heyday. So he was part of that gold rush to Alaska. And of course he fell in love with uh, just the, the land and just the, the whole mystery, the mystique of Alaska. Um, obviously had a real sense for nature and for capturing uh, just the mindset of the wilderness and what it does to people, what it does to animals. Um, what's interesting about his two books, Call of the Wild and White Fang, is that they basically have opposite trajectories. In Call of the Wild, you have the domestic dog that ends up running wild with the wolves in Alaska. And then in White Fang, you have the wild wolf of Alaska that by the end of the book ends up in California as a domesticated dog. So they, you know, White Fang and Buck, Buck is the domesticated dog that started in California. You know, they basically uh, cross paths or, or have these uh, opposite but equal trajectories. So those two books, if you've ever read one, I would recommend reading the other because those two books really do make a match set. There's sort of a weird kind of duology. Okay, so what we want to do here is, um, okay, yes, I see. There we go. We want to talk about the rule of thirds. Now, um, the rule of thirds, if you have ever had me for art, 
then you have heard me talk about this before. You will probably recognize the, the slide presentation because this is, this is one of those slide presentations that I set it up years ago and I have tried finagling with it. I've tried adding or taking away and really just the original version works best. So I'm just sticking with that. So if you've seen this before, I'm sorry. But also at the same time, I think I'm going to be giving you some additional information that you haven't had before. But when we talk about a world that is so focused on visual media, learning how that visual media is used to sway opinions and sympathies, to give you that warm, fuzzy feeling during the climactic moment of a movie that makes you stand up and cheer for a character that in real life you would not invite to sit down and have dinner with you at your house. Um, you know, you know, how do we sway the, the mindset, the opinions, uh, the emotions of the audience? Well, a lot of it has to do, most of it has to do with the way we frame things up, with the way we frame that visual media, whether it's a painting, a photograph, or in film. The rule of thirds is at the core of how this is framed up. If you've ever seen, um, and it's, it's, you see directors uh, do this when they do the, the little info documentaries of behind the scenes and you know the director standing up here and he's doing like this you know and it's spoofed in a lot of movies and cartoons too it's like oh i'm going yes i need you over here and, and he's framing it up with his fingers like that that's what they're doing as they are looking at the rule of thirds and the rule of thirds simply put is this this is at the top of your note-taking sheet the artistic principle that any image painting, photograph, graphic design, that includes film, should be broken into a grid. Should be broken into a grid with two vertical and two horizontal lines, creating nine equally proportioned boxes. They should be broken into a grid with two vertical and two horizontal lines creating nine equally proportioned boxes. So if you're looking at the screen here, what you see is a grid that is overlaid both of these photographs. One of them of an elephant's eye, a very nice close up there, and the other one of this very normal scene of, you know, a, a boy at home in a chair, the cat's on the windowsill, uh, you know, nothing very exciting happening in the second one. The first one is obviously working to be very artistic and very, um, uh, you know, cutting edge, almost art nouveau there. One of them is a tilted, um, what they call landscape. This is landscape. Uh, orientation, the one on the right, because it's more vertical. The other one is in portrait mode, which is more upright, more of like what you think of like writing on a sheet of notebook paper. It's, it's the paper is turned tall ways, that's portrait. If it's turned long ways, that's, um, what, what did I just say? Landscape. Um, but here's the thing, the rule of thirds works 
either way, whether the page is tilted upright or more horizontally, you have those nine even sections and you have those lines that intersect in four places. You see those four intersections right there. Now, that grid is, that is the rule of thirds. This is the idea that any image can be divided up like this and that if you use these lines and these four intersections to frame up your image, then all of a sudden it goes from being something ho-hum or, oh, that's interesting, it's, you know, it's Abraham Lincoln. Um, and it goes from that to being something a lot more arresting, a lot more interesting, a lot more profound. If I tried to take a photograph of an elephant's eye, you might not be able to tell what it was I was trying to do. Uh, because trying to get a close-up on an animal like that and make it look riveting the way that it is in that first photo, like that's a challenge. But you'll notice that in getting the close-up, the artist made sure that the, the eye was right above one of those intersections and that it, it's almost like he's not as wrinkled here on the edge and then the closer you get to the eye, the more crevices, the more uh, concentric circles and lines that you see there. And it really draws you into that timeless stare of the elephant. You're looking this creature in the eye and somehow just showing that piece of the animal somehow gives you a, a deeper appreciation of the elephant, which with good reason is one of the most uh, legendary and mysterious animals in the animal kingdom. I mean, aside from maybe ravens and owls, there's probably more lore and legends surrounding the elephant than almost any other animal in the world. I guess I would have to put the wolf and the bear above the elephant, but you get over to Africa and the elephant is king. And so that, that photo really captures it and all he did was frame it up really well. This scene over here with the boy, it's not, again, it, there's, there's nothing really fancy going on here. It's not artistic. There's no big drama, but if you notice, that the, the core of the boy's body is right over that one vertical line and then the intersection here is it's not quite on his eye but it's right there on the side of his face and so if I were to remove that grid and just show you the photograph again you might not be impressed with the subject matter but you would probably stop and look at the photo a little bit deeper just because of the way it's framed up. Okay. Um, when used well, this gets into our next slide here. Oops, went too far. When used well, the rule of thirds allows any creative image to, and these are your three points here, appear balanced. The rule of thirds allows any creative image to appear balanced, draw in the viewer, and tell a deeper story. Appear balanced, draw in the viewer, tell a deeper story. 
And so again, we have another photograph of a bee on a flower. Again, uh, taken uh, from a, another photographer, a, a different angle. It would just be a bug on a flower and maybe not impressive. And for some of us, maybe kind of freakish because we don't like bugs. But framed up like this, it becomes a work of art. Notice that with the rule of thirds, you have the, the picture, the image can be looked at in thirds a couple of ways. You can have one third, one third, and one third horizontally. You can have one third, one third, and one third vertically. And then if you're working on the diagonal, which we will talk about in a minute, you can have one third, one third, and one third. And you could also do it in reverse going the other way. So there are several ways that you can frame this up in thirds. It doesn't all have to be up and down and side to side. You can play with it. You can use several of these different placement anchoring points to really nail down your image. But see, what it does here with this one is that if you're dividing it into thirds vertically, you have the, the focus here is the flower, the focus here is the insect, and then there's nothing over here. Former art students, current art students, do you remember what we call the space that is not being used? Uh, white space, blank space. White space, blank space, or negative space there you go it is called negative space this is the note that didn't make it onto your note sheet that I want you to add to the side that the rule of thirds you know allows any creative image to do these three things it also employs masterful use of negative space it also employs masterful use of negative space So half the reason why this insect photo comes off as a work of art, part of it is because of the framing. You have one third, one third, one third, and even there's hinted at a little bit of the diagonal and that the flower starts up almost in the corner here, and then we have this slope down to the head of the insect, down the wings, and then you fade into the negative space of the bottom left corner. You can also say the same thing for here, here, and then up into that. So it, it's almost like you're creating almost a wedge from flower to insect to space. The framing, the use of thirds is part of the punch. The other part of it is the fact that the artist uh, allowed the negative space to just stay there. This is a much more powerful picture than if there were a lot of like blurry green leaves in the background because then your focus is just on the creation miracle of what is going on here. So the rule of thirds, this is dropping down to the next point, also requires the artist to make the best use of the four focal points. So these intersections here have a name and they're called focal points. 
Just like um, for anyone who wants a little bit of a spell check, the previous idea is called negative space. But these four intersections, these are called focal points. So when you look at a photograph, when you look at a movie screen, when you look at a picture in your textbook, your brain is wired to go to one of those four focal points. And there is a big psychological explanation behind this. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that in art and in nature, odd numbers are even. Let me re repeat that. In art and in nature, odd numbers are even. That's why the rule of thirds and why the nine boxes, because there's something about the putting things in groups of three, five, seven, or nine, or singly by itself, that balances the picture in a way that you, if you have like, you know, two things in the picture, it's like, oh, that's a nice picture. But somehow if you have three, or if you set things up using this rule of thirds so that there's still that mathematical odd number aspect in the composition of the picture, it somehow balances everything out. So you're using those four focal points that naturally occur at the intersection of the vertical and horizontal lines. That's your other blank there. Yeah, in art and nature, odd numbers are even. Odd numbers make things balanced. And if you subscribe to the fact that the Trinitarian view of creation is in the DNA of every single molecule, then that shouldn't surprise you. God the Fa Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that whole Trinitarian, you know, a three in one, with that as part of the DNA of creation and of reality, then yes, odd numbers are even. That's what puts things in balance. It's not yin and yang. <laughs> it's, it's the trinity. Um, okay, so the focal point is the area in the composition to which the viewer's eye is naturally drawn. The four intersections presented, that's your next blank, in the rule of thirds create natural focus points that draw the viewer in if the image is framed well. So I'm restating this, but just from another direction. Let me repeat that line again. A focal point is the area in the composition to which the viewer's eye is naturally drawn. The four intersections presented in the rule of thirds create natural focus focal points that draw the viewer in if the image is framed well. All right. And of course, I uh, put this together uh, so long ago, I would have to research which Renaissance or, or late Renaissance painter uh, this came from. <clears throat> I should know and I don't, I'm sorry. Um, but to frame an image really well, the artist needs to do the following. Number one, they need to anchor a key element on one of the four focal points. 
they should anchor a key element on one of the four focal points. Uh, and of course, if you look at this, what is being anchored on the focal points? Like what, let's see. Okay, the pot, the open pot, and notice that the, the intersection, the focal point, it's right there, almost like it's going to lead you in, like it naturally, it's placed there so that your eye naturally sees that and it follows in and you're looking in the pot to see if anything's there. What else is placed right on the intersection? Yeah. Yeah, the, the candle. Okay, the jar, the jar is, the edge of the jar is right here. It's like here's the jar and the lip of the jar goes right there onto the intersection. And then this, this is actually a, a candle, I think, with a lot of wax dripping down it. Um, and so it's right on the line, uh, but the intersection, that focal point, is eh, probably about halfway up the candle. And it's just above this so that when you, if you were to go to a museum and see this painting, you would walk up to it. And part of your brain would go, oh, it's just a bunch of like bottles and bread and it's a table with stuff on it. But you would still most likely stay and look at it a little bit longer because your, your mind would naturally start here, work its way up, come down here, and it invites you to look at the whole thing in a big circle. And, and by the time you circle back around to the pot again, you've noticed almost everything. And then if you do another look through, then you start seeing details deeper in the painting that maybe you didn't notice the first time around. So that's why something like this ends up in a museum and something that you and I might draw or paint or put together, you know, is, is really nice, but you know, it's very forgettable a lot of times. Not all of us. So some of us have no aspirations to be artists. Some of us here have some excellent skills in art. Please keep working with that. And the more you know about the rule of thirds, the more it will not only impact how you absorb other people's art, but it will also make a difference in how you frame up your own art, what you do with what you're creating. The second thing that an artist needs to do is that they should overlay any strong horizontal or vertical lines in the composition over a horizontal or vertical line on the grid, which is exactly what happens here with the candle. The candle is slap on that vertical line. The horizontal line, this one, it doesn't look like there are any, there's anything significant overlaid on this line, but there is. What, you can't really see it, but what is overlaid on that bottom horizontal line? Okay, well the bottle, but this is, I'm talking about something that you can't see because all these bottles and the loaf of bread and everything is blocking it. No, think about the surface, huh? The far edge of the table. Yes, very good. The far edge, I did not give him answers before class in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> good job, Darren. Um, uh, it's the far edge of the table. Now, the far edge of the table is not seen because of all the stuff that is on the table. 
but the in painting this the painter made good use of making sure that that far edge of the table is on that line and then he created everything on he painted everything on top of that and that for those of you who have had some art lessons also gets into a one two and three point perspective and vanishing point and where to put your horizon so if you've had me for art before and we've talked about vanishing point and horizons we've talked about how moving that horizon can really impact the viewers attitude if the uh, vanishing point and the horizon is put low it makes the viewer feel like they're they're more in a person of a uh, position of power they're coming into this and it's like oh this is you know I, I see all this you know below me I, I have the the powerful view of this if the hor uh, horizon and vanishing point is put almost dead center then that puts the viewer on equal footing with what's happening in the scene or in the painting and then if the horizon and finishing point is put higher up if it's up on this uh, upper horizontal line then that makes me as the viewer feel small pay attention to that next time you go and watch one of your marvel universe superhero movies they use the the whole the, the power of the horizon and the vanishing point a lot and a lot of those tricks are what give you clues early on in the movie as to who the hero or who the supervillain is going to be based on the camera angle. Is it making you feel small? Is it making you feel powerful? Pay attention to how that is used uh, uh, regarding Steve Rogers in the original Captain America movie. Up until he gets put into the big machine and comes out the superhero, the camera angles around him are, are positioned so that you feel small with Steve. And then when he comes out of the machine and he's been transformed to the superhero, all of a sudden those horizon lines surrounding Steve, they bump way up. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're in a position of power with Steve because now you're in for the ride and you're seeing things from his point of view. So where the director and the, um, the people doing the filming where they put the horizon it's very deliberate in that movie okay we've got a little more time let's uh go ahead and give number three if you layer images on the diagonal so they run through at least one focal point this is another thing an artist should do if you're going to put images on the diagonal they should run through at least one focal point now this painting does not do it um, I would need to show you, um, actually, let's, let's go back to our, to our bug. No. Yes. Let's, let's go back to this one, the, the very first slide with the boy and the cat. Okay. His arm is on the diagonal. And even though the arm is not over this intersection, if you follow up the full diagonal, you end up right here where his head crosses the intersection there, that focal point. So even though most of the rest of the photograph is framed up either on the horizontal or the vertical lines, like here's the windowsill, here's the cat, 
you know, here's the, the background, I, I don't know, it's probably part of this bedroom. Um, you know, here's the, the main, the core of the, the boy's body right here. But we get this nice diagonal that takes you straight up to that intersection. That's what, that's what I mean when I talk about layering on the diagonal. The rule of thirds can be applied several different ways to really add to the subject matter, whatever it is. Even if it's a static mugshot of somebody. <laughs> Not that uh, the police uh, departments go out of their way to make mugshots look flattering, but it could be something as basic as just a, a full face photo of someone, but if it is framed well, it goes from looking like a mugshot to a school photo versus, oh, this is a lovely portrait of so-and-so. So there's several ways that the rule of thirds can be applied in terms of how you want to affect the narrative of the image that is being shown. So one of the ways that the rule of thirds can be used, and this is on your sheet there, is emphasizing importance by placement. Now, one of the things that you will notice, we've already seen it with some of the earlier images, is that um, when, when things are placed in an image, they don't necessarily have to be right on the line or right on the focal point. But if those lines and focal points are placed well, sort of like with the pot, it wasn't actually on the pot, it was at the edge of it so that it led your eye into the cooking pot. It, it, it happens that way with a lot of images where sometimes the thing that you have to be aware of is the movement or the motion in the painting or the photo. So like here, this is an oil painting by Vicente Romero Redondo. Um, not familiar with him, uh, but that is a lovely, lovely painting. And if I were to put the grid over this, you would notice that the two women are slightly offset from those vertical lines. Actually, it's the one on the left who's slightly offset. The one on the right is right on, straight on that right-hand vertical line. And her parasol is right on the intersection, her parasol and her face. So we've got this wonderful anchoring point right here. It's just boom. It's almost like a big fancy circle just smack on that intersection. But we've got the double circle of the woman's face with the kerchief covering her hair and then the parasol behind her. Where is the other anchoring point? Something that falls straight on one of those intersections. The, the basket? The basket, yes. The basket here and then we have here. So those are your two anchoring points and the women uh, standing as they are, they just sort of frame up the whole thing. Even though they are more toward the center of the painting. Um, and so, uh, but even with the, the one woman being slightly off uh, or not entirely on that vertical line, the painting allows for the motion of the women themselves and also the wind and the grass and the flowers. So if something is offset, that's okay because the, um, 
the implied meaning here is that this is an event in motion. This is a moment that is still moving and the painter just captured this one moment of that meeting or, or picnic or whatever it is that they're having. Here's another one. This is not on your slideshow. This is a famous painting, um, Washington Crossing the Delaware, uh, painted in 1851 by Emanuel Lutz. I believe is how you pronounce his last name. I know you've seen this image hundreds of times growing up. Uh, it's been spoofed in movies and cartoons. It's in your history textbooks. Uh, it gets pulled out of mothballs every 4th of July and all sorts of like movies and things. But if you look at this, who is the most prominent person in the entire painting? George Washington. And after him, what is the most riveting or just sort of in your face, you notice it detail in the entire painting? The flag. Okay, so the flag is on the diagonal. It's not, you know, it's not offset over here. It's more through the middle. It's like George Washington is obviously not straight on the vertical line, but this is also an event that is very much in motion. You have the uh, boats rowing through the ice-choked waters of the Delaware, Delaware River, and you have more boats in the background. So you've got almost this sort of um, a boomerang kind of shape here. If you go with the boats and then back onto this one, it's almost like a, a, a big crescent moon. And we're looking at George Washington and the flag at one horn of that crescent moon. Yes, Cameron. Light and shadow are huge when it comes to framing and layering up. I'm trying real hard with, with this sort of exposition uh, to not get to too many of those different components at once because then it all just sounds like word salad. But you're absolutely right. Uh, when you get, especially when you get to film, you have the rule of thirds, you have the golden ratio, you have perspective, Vanishing point, horizon, light, and shadow, all of those things working together. And this is uh, those things working in combination is a large part of why you go to the theater or you're watching something on Netflix and you can watch something that has a fascinating plot and excellent acting, but it's just so hard to get through the movie it's probably because there's something off visually in the composition of the movie. And then conversely, and, and I know that this is true for myself, there are movies out there where the plot is lousy, there's almost nothing happening or it doesn't make sense, but you will sit through the whole thing and watch it anyway because visually it is so pleasing. Um, the two movies that come to mind for me anyway are the original Twilight movie and another, like, and it, and it is, it's, it's a horrible fantasy, it, like, it doesn't make any sense, and it's based on a book, and I'm not sure that the book makes any sense. It's called The Legend of Moonacre. Has anybody watched that one? Okay, plot-wise, it is full of Swiss cheese, but it is so pretty. Like, that 
one I will watch occasionally over again and not even necessarily have the sound on because the, the, the dialogue and the plot is just so clunky, but it is so pretty to watch because everything in that movie is framed up exactly using all of these techniques that I just mentioned. Um, it's also one of the reasons why I think even though the movie has a very bad rap in our current climate, Gone with the Wind still stays at the top of the 100 must-see movies in film history. And it's because if you go through that movie frame by frame, every single shot of that movie falls squarely on the rule of thirds and it is always used to master a full effect. And the, um, the, the people who filmed that movie, they knew exactly where the horizon was, how they were going to use the light and shadow, all of that. So yes, it's happening in layers. And uh, especially when it comes to Washington and the flag here, yes, you'll notice that it's these three and the flag that are in the most direct light. And even though you, know, you can see the other faces, they are also the only three faces that are what? That are not what? They're not facing what direction? Down. There you go. They are the only three faces that are turned up. They're looking up into the light, into the future, into the, the, the distant horizon of the other shore. Okay, so even that rule of thirds, it's not even about intersections and uh, vertical or horizontal lines, but you've got three faces in close proximity and they're all looking in the same direction in contrast with whatever else is going on here. And so your mind, your attention goes immediately to that as a focal point. Yes. Exactly, they are in much brighter colors. So color is another part of all of this. And we've got some red, I mean this guy is wearing red and there's some red scattered throughout, but the, the clear, brighter colors are on those three gentlemen and the flag, but especially Washington and the flag. Not an accident of the paintbrush, very deliberate. It was an excellent choice of framing, color, light, shadow, you know, shape, horizon, vanishing point, all of it. Okay, um, let's move on. And you'll notice too that on your note-taking sheet there are these um, italics, uh, these italicized notes under each of these uh, different headers. That's so if you want to go looking these artists up um, or look up more information about certain paintings, you can do so. All right, then we have, oh, oh, hold on, there we go, I accidentally tried to skip one on you, uh, rule of thirds, geometric placement. Now, this is a cigarette ad from the World War II era, and on the one hand, there's nothing really special about this. Um, whoever drew this, of course, all of this, even the, the 
a sketch of the, the cigarette box and the label and everything, all of that would have been hand-drawn back in the day. Um, so whoever the artist was, I mean, that obviously had a lot of skill, a lot of talent, but when you compare it to like Norman Rockwell and, you know, some of the other guys at the time, maybe not quite as polished, um, but the framing of this, it's very simple, but it works or it would have worked for the time because you basically have a triangle of circles. You have the circle of the label here, you have the circle of the label on the cigarette box, and then what's the other circle? The girl's face, which is, oh, especially when you factor in her hair, is, um, you know, it makes another perfect circle. And of course, she's puckering up. We've got another circle there because she's ready either to give you a kiss or to have a cigarette. And she wants you to light up her cigarette and, um, so that she can enjoy a moment with you, I guess. So there's several layers of um, implied meaning in this to begin with. Uh, but again, a little clunky, but it still works. Like your brain immediately looks for that triangle. Boom, 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 and then back. So even if it's not fancy, even if it's not complicated, it still works. Um, and I would extrapolate from this, if you are in the habit, or even if your family occasionally watches old black and white movies from the early days of Hollywood, um, this is why so many of those black and white movies work so well, even though they were made before color film or before the camera angles um, and, and all of that really came into its heyday before you could really do a lot. Uh, with film in terms of like camera angles and what you could actually do with the cameras. The original uh, film cameras were very heavy, very clunky, and basically you could put them in one place and everybody had to walk back and forth in front of the camera because you couldn't turn the camera. And then even when you could turn the camera, it was more like, you know, one of those animatronic dolls that just sort of and that's just, that's as far as you could go. Not a big range, not like the kind of camera angles that you and I are used to now. It still works. Huh. Keeps jumping on me. Okay. <clears throat> we have geometric placement. So we saw where three rounded things were placed well to really pull the viewer into the cigarette ad. Now we have geometric composition. So if you'll notice here, um, we've got this little boy, I'm guessing he's at the zoo because he is sitting on the back of a Galapagos turtle and is trying to feed him a carrot on a stick. I think everybody's inner five-year-old would like to do this. I know my inner five-year-old would like to do this. Hmm? What was that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, well and Chris, Galapagos turtles, they're like living time capsules. Like, they're just, they're magical. I'm, I'm convinced. Um, so here, it's a simple moment, and but whoever framed up the photo did a really good job because you have, again, this triangular arrangement of the subjects. You have the boy's head down to his foot, up the neck of the turtle. There's the 
the carrot and the, the turtle's face, he's, he's going for that carrot, and then back up the stick, up the boy's arm, and then you end back at his face. So it makes this complete triangle of movement. Um, the other thing that really anchors down this photo is that in the background, you've got a perfect division of thirds. You've got the bottom third of the ground, you've got the a middle third of, I'm guessing, the pen or enclosure that they are in, and then you've got the the top third, uh, and I'm guessing that's a concrete wall because if, uh, maybe it's just the angle, but that looks like a vent, like a ventilation vent, like in a concrete wall up there. So probably at, the, at a zoo somewhere. But this is divided up into perfect one, two, like even using my hand at hand span as a measurement, it's almost perfect. There's a little bit more in the top part than the other two, but it's almost perfectly divided in thirds. So you're getting that repetition of three in multiple directions. All right, and then we get the rule of thirds applied in a way that it evokes emotion and it really pulls in the human sentiment. Um, and some of this has to do with the content. What you see here is a war bond poster from World War II. The artist, Norman Rockwell, um, one of my favorite illustrators ever of all time, if you've ever had me for an art class, you know that. I'm always singing the praises of Norman Rockwell. Um, but in trying to sell war bonds, he was part of the effort to sell war bonds, which means that people were raising money for the war effort. And if you bought war bonds, then you know the, the, the money went to the war effort. And there's, there's this whole thing with war bonds going on. Uh, but Norman Rockwell made these posters, you would call them, really they're propaganda posters. It's propaganda put to a good use, or at least we as Americans would think so. Um, and part of how he's got this framed up, we also have the wording here, save freedom of worship, each according to the dictates of his own conscience. And then down at the bottom, buy war bonds. And we will see this with another propaganda poster in a, in a moment. This is typical of World War II propaganda and that you declare the problem, you show what's at stake, and then you tell the solution, the proposed solution. So here, he, what, he, what does he say is under attack? Freedom of worship. And then who is at risk? Everybody. And then what is his proposed solution for solving this problem? buy war bonds so that our army can, and navy and, and whoever can protect our constitutional freedom to worship freely. Yeah. Um, first of all, what you'll notice is something that Cameron said a minute ago, and that is the use of light. Um, where is my light source placed? That is something that we talk about a lot in art class, is the placement of your light source because that informs where you sketch in your shadows. So where, where is the light source placed? Is it up here, here, or down here? Yeah, it's in the middle. It would, it's like the light is coming right here. 
do you see how the, all of these faces are placed on the diagonal? They're actually in layers of diagonals. Because you have this diagonal here, this diagonal here, and then this diagonal of faces here. Now, um, I think I actually made note on your sheet there. Uh, note, the note the subtle indicators of different faiths on the three lowermost faces. So the young woman, the older woman, and the man. What three faiths are represented here? <clears throat> you have to pay attention, but all the clues are there. Um, okay, Sayla, give me one. Woman, Catholic, yeah, the young woman is Catholic. She's holding her rosary. Okay, and then give me another one, Rhett. The older woman's a Jew. Okay, possibly. Um, it, she's, uh, you know, I assumed Protestant, but she could be Jewish. But uh, she obviously is in the habit of praying, but she she's not holding on to anything. You know, in some faiths, you're supposed to, you know, pray around the rosary. You're supposed to hold uh, your, your holy scriptures and, you know, kiss it or, or place it against your forehead, that sort of thing. So maybe Jewish, maybe Protestant. But what about this man here? Any takers? It's, he's not Christian. He is worshiping in, in, according to the dictates of his own conscience, as the poster says. Is it Islam? Islam. The, oh, hey, I'm throwing my mask around. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be like the ladies in Pride and Prejudice and wave my, my mask. Goodbye, and everybody. Okay, so it's the hat, and then you, you have to be right up on it. But the way he's holding his little book of scripture, um, it, it's that, that's Islam. The hat is your main indicator here. It is used in some parts of the Muslim world. Uh, when I uh, spent a summer in Indonesia visiting friends, that was the kind of hat that all Muslim men, uh, if, if they were practicing Muslims, that was the hat they wore. Okay. Let's do a few more. There we go. Rule of thirds in war propaganda. Okay, this is what I was alluding to a minute ago. Norman Rockwell's frame up, it does the same thing, but it's a far more elegant design. Here, it's very in your face. It's meant to make you hit the panic button just a little bit. Is he your child? You don't want this. And then you see what's at stake in this, this beautiful blue-eyed, blonde-haired kid, and he's trying on the Nazi hat. Buy war bonds before it is too late. Okay. So this is like clear in-your-face propaganda, war propaganda. But the, the threat was real. The need was real. And everybody during the war, for lots of obvious reasons, were being far more careful with their money. They had to be. Everything was being rationed. Uh, so getting people to part with hard-earned cash for the war effort, you had to give them a real reason to buy in. And uh, implying or pointing out it, it wasn't made up, it was a very real threat that the next generation would suffer or actually become part of the enemy 
this would be cause for panic in any parent's heart. So any red-blooded American parent looking at this poster, this would stop them in their tracks. And you know, from an analytical point, you've got the one-third of the caption up here, one-third with the child, one-third with buy war bonds. So again, we have here's the problem, here's what's at stake, here's the solution. Okay, um, another of those top 100 photos, uh, iconic, historically important, visually beautiful, and for those of us who try to take really interesting photos, uh, it's the kind of thing you look at and go, how did a guy up to his armpits in mud and water manage to capture this one in a million photographs? Like how? How do you even do this? Especially when you consider the way cameras and film operated back in the day because this is obviously before digital you're working with real camera that if it got uh, in real film that if it got wet or exposed to sunlight too early or you know you know things go wrong with the shutter or the lens cap like there are so many different ways that your film could be ruined uh, this is just a stunning stunning photo uh, but this one does most of its narrative on the diagonal and everything is beautifully framed in thirds on the diagonal. So you have the first diagonal for start bottom right corner. You have this triangle of water and rushes. You have another triangle of just the humanity. And then you have the jungle. I mean, it's still basically the same swamp or trench that they're in, but you, you, it gives you this contrast between jungle, people, and then the water. Then you have the one-third of the light and the soldiers keeping watch. You have the middle third with the children and, and probably, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, I can't tell if that's another child or if that might be um, a, an adult who's hunkered down with the, the baby. And then in the foreground, you have the mother or grandmother, and you've got her sorrow, their fear, their vigilance. And it's just boom, 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 boom. And you get from the, the watchfulness here in the, the back, and then here it looks like this soldier, maybe this one, their, their faces are starting to turn out toward the camera, and then here. And of course, who's the only person in the picture who's looking directly into the camera? The baby, and the baby, dead center. I mean, it's just such a beautiful frame, of, like, no matter how you slice this, like there is no way this photo could um, better use any of the elements going into framing up an image. And then, if you, again, if you know something about one, two, and three point perspective and horizon lines, there's your horizon and the vanishing point, everything draws back to that vanishing point right there. It is that, that, that's a one in a million shot right there, especially if you're taking photos in the day and age before digital film. Yeah, Horst Foss, who is the photographer for this one, he is credited with taking the, um, most of the more iconic photos of the latter half of the Vietnam War. Did you go to yes. Pulitzer for this? 
I think so. I actually went looking last night to see if he did. I believe he did. I got interrupted. I didn't finish my search, but I believe he did. If he didn't, he should have. Did I see a hand up here, or is that just like a little stretch? Okay, sorry. I'm just imagining things. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, yeah, we're doing good on that. Rule of thirds, storytelling on the diagonal. Now, if you draw or paint, especially if you aspire to do so with the human figure, this is the kind of thing that I think most portrait artists aspire to, is to be able to frame up a story in one frame like this. Um, 1944, World War II is still in full swing. Uh, the title there, again, this is another Norman Rockwell, Little Girl Observing Lovers on a Train. So you have the, uh, the officers who have, uh, they either have come home from the war or they are about to leave for the war. Actually, his um, shoes and everything are too clean. Uh, so I'm guessing maybe going to war. And you can't see the canoodling going on between the guy and his girlfriend, but you can see the little girl's face. And you can see how she's studying it and she's got like this whole mix of emotions going on from the ooh to that sweet to this is actually, this kind of hurts a little bit. Not hurts in an ooh yuck kind of sense, but there's a word going on, this hurts. Uh, because you can tell, it's almost like this dawning comprehension of what this means to this young couple. And part of her brain doesn't understand it yet, and part of her brain understands it all too well. Um, on the diagonal, of course, you've got the, the legs and the shoes there, really sweet. Um, you've got this other sailor and his sweetheart down in the corner. You've got the ticket master coming by, uh, punching tickets, making sure everybody's, you know, legally on the train that nobody sneaked aboard. Um, the seats are on the diagonal, the wall of the train is on the diagonal, but then you've also got the crowded top third of everybody else, which is a mix of civilians and military. You've got this bottom third, and then you've just got this space here. Now, why is a storyteller would you want to use so much negative space here with this couple in their little honeymoon seat? What does that do for what's going on between the soldier and his sweetheart? It doesn't distract you from the main. Yeah, it, it doesn't, like, it, it really creates this gulf, it, and, and it makes you not just focus in here, but it, it makes you look at all of it. Also, it, it sort of creates this sort of um, isolating space for the gut. Like, they are in a world of their own. They, they are getting every moment they can before he has to board a ship because once he boards ship um, or gets on a plane, she has no guarantee that she will ever see him again. And a lot of those guys, they never came home. So, so it does several things. It creates this gulf between you know what's going on here and what she's trying to understand it um, physically makes you look at the whole thing but it also creates this almost sort of snow globe effect for the lovers they're in a world of their own 
and they're not going to let anybody infiltrate that little kingdom for the next hour, hour and a half, three hours, however long the train ride is. Okay, couple more. Order and chaos, rule of thirds. Uh, another Vietnam War uh, photo here. Main thing that I want to point out, and I gave you notes uh, on this on your worksheet, is you have, okay, so you've got several things going on here. First of all, you've got the wall of the U.S. Embassy. I don't know, maybe my front row people can see it, but you can see part of that seal, <laughs> the eagle, and, you know, the, 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 the motto, the arrows, all of that. Um, and then it also says, you know, Embassy, United States of America. So you've got the wall of the U.S. Embassy. And then you've got, you know, the, the collection of walls and rooftops in the background. And then up here you get to the, the very top rooftops and the power lines. So you've got that rule of thirds going on there. Um, if you're going rule of thirds this way, you've got barbed wire and the soldier. You've got these couple people, and then over here you've got like chaos, like you just got people scaling the walls. Or you can look at it this way in that you have rule of thirds on the diagonal here, here, and here. You can also look at it from a almost like a serpent kind of uh, motion where it's like it's going like this, but either way, no matter how you look at this, whether you look at it in uh, horizontal layers, diagonal layers, if you're looking at the snake uh, formation of the line, every single one leads you back to this guy right here. And he is right on that line, and what part of him is right over the intersection, right over the focal point? Hmm? Yeah, the, the, the rifle, like this right here, that the rifle and his tool belt is, you know, I, I, I don't know all of the tactical words. <laughs> yeah, it's canteen. Yeah, like his, his readiness is right there on the focal point. And then if you look at the focal point, you know, opposite that, you've got the hopeful faces of the people who are waiting for their turn to scale the wall. Then, you have Drawing Parallels by Placement, another Norman Rockwell. This is Boy Reading Adventures Story, Oil on Canvas, 1923. Uh, the vast majority, huh? 1923. 1923, yes. The vast majority of Norman Rockwell's work um, was painted for magazine covers, the Saturday Evening Post. He was the uh, magazine cover artist for I think it was something like 35 or 40 years. Um, and he painted on very large canvases that would then be photographed and shrunk down to um, make this just almost too good to be true, crisp and clear, beautiful picture for the magazine cover on an eight, roughly an eight and a half by 11. Um, the real tragedy, too, is that the people that he worked for at the time, and I don't know why they would have done this, 
except it was to make sure that they were the only ones who got royalty from the image. After they photographed the paintings, a lot of the original paintings got burned. So we don't have the originals for all of these. We do for some, but not for all of them. He was also, um, his uh, famous methodology is that he would call in actors into his art studio and he would take photographs of them posing a certain way and then he would paint from the photographs. Um, now, anytime you see a Norman Rockwell painting, fun fact, where you see this little red-headed kid with the spectacles and the little alpha, alpha sprout at the crown, that is him. He is painting himself as a young man. And so, uh, and that makes this particular setup all the sweeter because you have Norman Rockwell, the kid, reading from his adventure books, and then you have Norman Rockwell, the hero of his own adventures in his head. As he's reading the book, he's doing like any good reader would do. He's imagining himself in the story. But uh, even though the um, posture and the trappings are different, you still get this parallel. You, you have him, of course, he still has the glasses because, you know, he's got to see where he's going. And then he's sitting on a mound of books. And then here you have all mounted all the, the trappings of, of Christendom in the Middle Ages. You know, his shield of honor and Lady Fair and the castle in the background. And instead of his trusty charger here, he has his dog. So it's not mirror image, which you can do that too. And you see that a lot in movies um, where it's like a perfect mirror image and even the positioning is identical. It doesn't have to be. It's, it just has to be placed well enough where you get th that, um, that re-emphasizing of the themes or the ideas being presented. And the fact that his dream world is in this circle is a nice stylistic touch, especially since the visor of his helmet comes a little bit out of the circle. The lines in the background, that's part of the Saturday Evening Post, the way the magazine covers uh, were always uh, set up. You would have these two lines and they would have this very elaborate script, say Saturday Evening Post. <clears throat> and the, uh, the lettering would be put in later um, but again, you have bottom thirds, the knowledge, top thirds, the fantasy, and then here you have his mind overlapping with the images that he's picturing in his head. I could say more about that one, but let's go on <clears throat> because I want to get to this one. And if you've seen this one before, don't spoil the surprise because you know where I'm going with this. If you've had me for art before. Storytelling with careful placement. Now, again, Norman Rockwell, Roadblock, 1949. Tell me about this picture. What are you seeing? People who have not had me for art before. Like, what's, what's sort of the main thrust of this one? What's the main action that's going on? The dog is in the way. The dog is in the way of the moving van. And why is this a problem? Look at the environment. Why is this a problem for the moving van? <laughs> they can't go around him. 
and it's a very tight alley, so they probably can't back up without wedging themselves tight. Uh, so the dog is just, he's just not having it. He, it's just a woeful little thing. Okay. Now, tell me about the rule of thirds going vertically and horizontally. What do you see? windshield and the horizon would be right there as well which as a viewer that puts us on equal footing with what's going on here so it makes the viewer feel like that you have just walked up on this scene and that's why he's inviting you to join in the joke and she's inviting you to, to join her in the long-suffering eye roll as all of this is going down now, there's something else interesting going on here. What else did Norman Rockwell do with the placement of people in particular that really draws you into this? It almost acts like um, a spiral or, or a pinwheel that's rotating and it's constantly pulling you deeper into the picture. Okay, back and forth. Specifically what? From the top 
it, it zigzags out. Okay, very good point. Uh, that's something else I haven't had anybody point out before. Yes, there's almost this ping pong going bing, 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 bing. All the way down. So it is, it, it's a nice back and forth. There's another layer to that back and forthness though um, that gets really neat if you consider placement of people in triangles. And if you just go ahead and consider that the dog is going to be one point of all of those triangles, then what you end up with is a who goes where kind of hidden picture story. For instance, where is the dog's two owners? At the top, where? Yeah, here on the balcony. So she's freaking out because of the dog, and there's her husband, and he's like, oh, that dog said this time. <laughs> I knew we were going to lose him. <laughs> you know? I mean, he's just taking it all in stride, and she's flipping out, and it's... And that, that, is the, that is the core family right there. One, one, two, three, boom. That's one triangle. Now, this man is pointing with his paintbrush. Who does he belong with? That one's a little more obvious. Yeah. The woman hanging out of the window with him. Now, what's his profession? I've already sort of let it slip. He's an artist, and you can tell because he's got these paintings that are drawing or sketches that are hanging in the window. And the model, she's sort of wrapped up in a cloth here. Um, so there could be some hanky-panky going on, but probably what's being implied here is that she's the model that he's painting from and she probably isn't wearing a whole lot. Um, so, so you get like this whole little sidebar here with the artist and his model and um yeah and he's actually if you, i don't know if you can tell from where you're sitting he's actually holding his artist palette with the the paint okay we're almost we're about up on time so let me point out a few more things you also have a triangle here with the movers you've got the one who's doing the coaxing and the one who's doing the cursing and the bullying yes um yes yes that's uh, norman rockwell and what is he carrying Okay, so you have the violin student. Here's the dog. Where's the violin teacher? Way up here. See where the line says lessons, and and she's leaning out. She's holding her violin, and, and I know it's a little far out. I'll leave this up for a few minutes. So after you, uh, as you leave, if you want to come up and look at it in more detail, and then you you also have, and it goes on from there. You've got, you know, the window washer and the washerwoman, and they're having a good laugh about it. You, you've got the little black boy and girl, and, and they're having their moment together. And it, it just, it, it's like these overlapping triangles that uh, almost create this spiral that draw you into that silly dog right there. Final comment, and then uh, the wrap up. Yes, yeah. And see, that gets into the golden ratio, which we don't have time to talk about here, but it's this spiral 
that yeah the, the dog is the center of attention and he's not on any of the focal points he is um, you know just about or a little bit lower than that lower horizon line but the fact that all of the triangles point to him all of the the snaking the ping pong the the real things it all leads to the dog That wraps it up for this study on the rule of thirds. We will definitely pick up with this theme and this line of thought in future lectures. But until then, just pay attention to those photographs and pictures and film that you see and start looking for the ways that the artist frames things up to sway your opinion, your sympathies, um, or even just to draw you deeper into the story. So until next time, thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.